I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, starting verse 23. We'll go to chapter 3, verse 15. And if you're using the Bibles in the chairs around you, you can find it on page 887. John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus said, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. O God, blow the wind of your Spirit through this sanctuary today into our hearts. Blow through the churches across the city and state, across our country, across our world. Bring the dead to life by the power of your living word. Give birth to your children through by the power of your Holy Spirit. And O Christ, give us eyes to see you high and lifted up and exalted on the cross. May we believe with true faith and find eternal life in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Jesus doesn't leave us guessing at all about how important it is to be born again. So, do you know what it means to be born again? Has that happened to you? For everyone sitting here today or listening online, this is the number one thing that you should be thinking about today. 
If you're unsure about what it means to be born again or, or whether or not you yourself have been born again, there's nothing more important to set your mind on right now than this. As Jesus says here, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of God is at stake. You must be born again. Now, uh, uh, maybe you're here today, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're new to Christianity, uh, and maybe you uh, have, have, uh, have heard of this phrase, uh, being born again. It's a fairly popular term uh, in, our, in our culture even. Uh, last year, in uh, 2021, the Pew Research Center uh, did a survey and asked U.S. adults this question. Would you describe yourself as a born-again or evangelical Christian or not? They found that 24% of U.S. adults would describe themselves as born-again or evangelical. 24%. That's quite a bit. Now, that's actually down, though. That's down from 30% uh, back in 2007. For many Christians today, being a born-again Christian is the litmus test for being a genuine Christian. This trend of identifying as a born-again Christian is actually a relatively recent phenomenon uh, that's gained popularity in probably the past 50 to 100 years or so. Uh, and, and, and so as a result from that, this phrase has kind of, kind of become cliche. It's taken on different meaning. Um, for example, perhaps you have someone who uh, prayed a prayer as a kid at a Bible camp, uh, but then their life really uh, has shown no, no, no change or difference. Um, they might call themselves born again because they were told, oh, you prayed that prayer, now you are born again. Or perhaps there might be somebody who walked down the aisle at a revival meeting, uh, but their life has no, there's no change to that person's life whatsoever. Now that person, they might also call themselves born again because they were told that they are because they walked down the aisle so today we, we, we live in a day where this, this ancient and essential teaching of Jesus has lost its original meaning and it's, it's lost its roots in the Old Testament and instead it's taken on a, a definition shaped more by American revivalist culture of the past 200 years or so so my aim is for us to get back to Jesus' definition of what it means to be born again and to instill within each one of us the importance of this work of God in us and for us. Uh, as you can see, I don't have an outline in the, in the bulletin, so here are my three main points. First, the first point is fake faith, fake praise, and a fake Jesus. Second point, you must be born again. The third point, real faith, real praise, and a real Jesus. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 23, and let's consider the first point, fake faith, fake praise, and a fake Jesus. The last three verses of chapter 3 belong more appropriately to chapter... Uh, the. Uh, the last three verses of chapter 2, I mean, belong more appropriately to chapter 3 than they do to chapter 2. So I think this is a good reminder uh, that the, the chapter divisions in our Bible are not inspired. Um, they are very helpful. They're, they're good to have. Um, but they, they were added in the, in the 1200s uh, by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. 
And uh, while he did a fairly good job with a, with a, with a pretty difficult task, uh, there's instances like this where scholars think that, that uh, the chapter division here is a little off, and, and the, the last three verses here belong more to the content of chapter 3. And we'll, we'll see why here in just a minute. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll re- read from there. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he, he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. <clears throat> So here we see the surrounding context of Nicodemus' famous visit to Jesus by night. The context shows that Jesus was gaining uh, a following because of his miraculous signs. But Jesus is not like us. When, when we get a following of people, when people start to speak well of us and, and start to uh, speak well of what we do, uh, we often bask in their praises and, th- and then we keep those people close to us. The, the people who sing our praises the most are the people that we trust the most. But Jesus was not influenced by the praises of man as we are. He had a divine understanding of what was truly inside man's heart and mind. And he, he understood the hidden intentions of man. He knew when faith was fake and when praise was flattery. John uses a play on words here when he says that many believed in his name, but then he uses the same word for believe to say that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So in essence, he's saying that while people trusted in Jesus, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew that their trust was often superficial. We'll see this a, a few more times throughout the book of John, that there are people who believe in a superficial uh, surface level, but, but they do not have saving faith. Instead, when, uh, when Jesus teaches things they don't like, or when, he, they, when, when Jesus doesn't do the miracles and signs that they want him to do, or when Jesus get, gets arrested and then becomes kind of dangerous to be associated with Jesus, these, uh, these believers and followers of Jesus stop believing and following. So it's in this context of Jesus' rising popularity of probably a lot of superficial followers that a man named Nicodemus pays Jesus a visit. In verse 1, John says, Now there was a man, a man, now, now he, so he says he, he calls him a man right after he had given a warning that about what was in man, and just right in that previous verse. So we see that the pre, that that uh, these verses are, are connected together. It would have been easier for John to say uh, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, but instead he intensely says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. I think this alerts us to see that Nicodemus is going to be an example of a man who appears to believe in Jesus, 
But Jesus is not going to entrust himself to him. So, who, who is Nicodemus? What do we know about him? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now, this phrase, a ruler of the Jews, that, that might mean that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, it was the Jewish governing body that consisted of 70 men, uh, men who were uh, either Sadducees or Pharisees. So this was, would be like the equivalent to our Supreme Court and Senate. And the high priest functioned as the, uh, the, the president presiding over this governing body. So Nicodemus was likely one of these top Jewish rulers. Uh, furthermore, we also see from Nicodemus' name that, that he has a Greek name, even though he was Jewish. So I think what this means is uh, it was common during that time for Jews uh, who, were, who belonged in the upper class, who were the wealthy Jews, uh, they often gave their children both Greek and Jewish names. So it's likely here that Nicodemus was, had been born into, uh, into the upper class. So, um, from, from what we see here, um, we, we see that Nicodemus was likely a man of great moral character, because he was a Pharisee. He was a great man, a, a man of great influence and power with his position, and, and he was a man of high education and likely a, a degree of wealth. So, all, all of this uh, puts some, uh, some weight behind his visit. Here is a, an influential, significant man coming to meet with Jesus. So what does, Nic what, what does Nicodemus have to say to Jesus? He starts by speaking for the Pharisees, or, or maybe he's, he's speaking for the Sanhedrin, saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, I don't know. That's On the surface level, that seems all, all, uh, all good. Um, Nicodemus respectfully calls Jesus rabbi, and he says that they believe he is a teacher from God who does real signs because God is with him. Okay. Now, all this is true, but I think Jesus is going to see through this. I think he's going to see that this, not everything that Nicodemus is saying here is really all uh, that, is, that is fully true. Nicodemus comes to speak for the Pharisees in a favorable way to Jesus. But perhaps Jesus is seeing that this is being done in kind of a patronizing way. A way that it's, it, where they're, they're, they're looking down on Jesus. They're, they're limiting him and their perspective. as uh, he's, he's only this gifted teacher uh, that God is using in the moment in powerful ways. They believed in a fake Jesus. A Jesus that was a, merely a man, merely a teacher who could do miracles. Someone who was doing significant work today and perhaps tomorrow wouldn't anymore. But Jesus is much more than that. Do you believe in a fake Jesus? Or do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Do you, do you kind of have your own definition of who Jesus is? Have you kind of made up your ideas about him? Or do you believe in the real Jesus of the Bible? 
You limit Jesus to it's just, he, he, just simply being a, a loving and sacrificial man who, who taught some very good and moral uh, teachings? Or do you believe that he was the Son of God, the Messiah as revealed in the Scriptures? So we see here that the Pharisees, they, they were initially favorable towards Jesus. But it's kind of like how Saul was initially favorable towards David, you know? They started off on a, on a great note. But then once David started winning a lot of battles and the people started singing the praises of David over against the, the praises of Saul, uh, that, that's when things began to change. Just as Saul got murderously jealous of David, uh, so also the Pharisees will become murderously jealous of Jesus for how popular he is becoming. They're afraid of the people turning on them and the power shifting over to Jesus. <clears throat> well, I think Jesus sees through Nicodemus's uh, fake praise that Nicodemus isn't viewing him in the right way of who he truly is. And Jesus doesn't respond to this flattery at all. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to buddy up with this influential man. No, Jesus doesn't do that. You know, the, Jesus doesn't try to be like, okay, all right, you know, here's an influential person. I'm going to partner with, with him because that's going to make my ministry more effective. Or, you know, Jesus didn't surround himself with really powerful people. I mean, look at his disciples. He, he, he surrounds himself with, with fishermen, uneducated fishermen. Okay, so, so Jesus, he's not looking to partner up with influential people in order to, to give himself a platform. So uh, he he doesn't he doesn't respond to the flattery at all. Instead, Jesus is just going to ignore what what Nicodemus just said, and he's going to change the subject to something far more important. Something far more important, and we see what that is in verse three. So let's consider our second point right now. Uh, you must be born again. Look with me at verses three through five. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So let's consider three things about being born again. First, let's consider the need for it. Second, let's consider what it is and how it happens. And third, let's consider the evidence of it in somebody's life. How do we know that it's happened? So let's first look at verse 3 and consider the need for it. We see here that Jesus completely changes the topic of conversation to get right at the heart of what Nicodemus needs. He doesn't need a partnership with Jesus. He needs new life in him. He needs the, the mercy and forgiveness and atonement of Jesus. Nicodemus was born into wealth and, and affluence and religious elitism. He was, he was born a child of Abraham. But Jesus said to him, you must be born again. 
Everything that, 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 that Nicodemus was born into would be of no help to getting him into heaven. Commentator Leon Morris says of this, In one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. So Jesus could not have stressed his point any harder. No matter who you are, no matter what you've been born into, born with, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must have new life from God. Perhaps there's some of you children here today. You, you were born into a Christian family. And, and praise God, that's awesome. But being born into a Christian family doesn't mean you get to be, you just get to go to heaven. You must be born again, no matter who your parents are. So we all need this new birth. So what, what's this experience of being born again? What is it, and, and how does it happen to us? When Jesus says, uh, born again, that, that word again can also be translated from above. To be born from above. And uh, that's actually how that word's translated in, in many of the other parts where it's used in the Gospel of John, if not all of them. Um, I, think, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's doing a play on words uh, with, with a double meaning. This birth that he's talking about, it, it is a new birth, of being born again in a new way, but it is a birth that comes from above. This birth is the, the same thing mentioned in the prologue in chapter 1 in verses 12 through 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Born of God. We must be born of God to become children of God. Now Nicodemus, he, he gets taken aback by this. He, he thinks that Jesus is odd for saying that in order to enter the kingdom of God, uh, we need to enter a, uh, into our uh, mother's womb and be born a second time. But obviously that's not all what Jesus is talking about. He clarifies what he means in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and spirit. To be born again is to be born of water and spirit. So what is this? To be born of water and spirit, uh, it's not two different births, like a natural birth first and a spiritual birth second, as some of it have interpreted this. But I think the Greek construction here seems to favor that uh, being born of water and spirit is one singular event. It refers to a washing by the Holy Spirit. Another word for this is regeneration. The Holy Spirit washes us clean from our sin and he gives us new life by dwelling within us. I believe by speaking of water and spirit... Jesus is teaching what the Old Testament taught about the New Covenant. There's two, there's two Old Testament passages that I think are likely candidates uh, for what Jesus is alluding to. And that's Ezekiel 36 
and Isaiah 44. Ezekiel 36 and Isaiah 44. In Ezekiel 36, God promises both to wash his people and to give his people his spirit. It says in verses 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So we see new life. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here we see God promising in the new covenant to cleanse us from sin and idolatry, giving us new life with a new heart that's led by his very own spirit so that we walk in his ways. These are the promises of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. This promise of the Holy Spirit is far greater than the old covenant of Moses. The old covenant that, that, that Nicodemus and the Pharisees and, and the Jewish people were living under. It was a covenant that could, that could the, the, this old covenant, it, it could not bring life. It could not restore a relation, keep or restore a relationship with God because, it, it, because of sin. And so God promised a better covenant that he, where he would put his very own spirit into his people so that they would believe and follow him and obey and never turn. So I think Jesus is teaching uh, here, uh, he's, he's alluding to, uh, by saying water and spirit, I think he's bringing us back to Ezekiel 36. But I, I also think that it's very likely that he's drawing from, from several Old Testament passages, and, and one of that uh, I think is also Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 5. Here we see not only the ideas of water and spirit come together, but we also see this idea of being born of God. Let me read it. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen, thus the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, from the womb, and will help you. All right, so we see, we see these ideas of being born of God, God making and forming his people as if uh, like a child in the womb. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and name himself by the name of of Israel. This is a really powerful and beautiful prophecy, uh, a great vision of what God is going to do in the new covenant by pouring out his spirit like water on his people, bringing about this, this new life that, we're, that people are alive and they, they, they claim that they belong to the Lord. There's a restored relationship that happens in this new birth, this new life. A restored relationship between God and man. He will be their people. He will be their God and they will be his people. 
So I think this is what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus in John chapter 3 by, by speaking of water and spirit. Being born again of water and spirit. Born from above of water and spirit. So I think he's just simply teaching what the Old Testament prophets prophesied about. He wasn't making up a new idea. So how do we receive this new birth? Jesus compares the work of the Holy Spirit to wind. In verse 8 of John chapter 3. Now, both the Hebrew name for wind uh, and, the, and the Greek word for wind is, is also the same, the same words for spirit. Um, so there's kind of a play on words here uh, with wind and spirit. And it says uh, in verse three, uh, verse eight of John three, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. We cannot make the spirit do our bidding. Rather, the new birth is something done to us when we're spiritually dead, unable to believe and, and unable to, to even cry out to the spirit to, to make us alive. The new birth is done to us. The, the Apostle Peter also speaks in this way about being born again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God, out of his mercy, causes us to be born again. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. Just like Lazarus, you know, he was dead in the tomb. He couldn't raise himself. And so also, we cannot give ourselves new life or even ask for the Spirit to save us when we're spiritually dead. Instead, Jesus speaks and he gives us his Spirit and we become alive. And once God's Spirit makes us alive, we then believe. We have faith in Christ. And we are saved from our sin. So this is why we must be born again. We must have God's Spirit make us alive. There's no other way to become spiritually alive than by the Spirit of God. And when He makes you alive, then He unites you to Jesus Christ. And you receive His forgiveness. You're washed clean from all of your sin. And you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we need God to do this work. We need God to, to give us a new nature. We need to become new creations. People that, that turn away from our old rebellion, our old ways, our old sins, and then follow after Jesus with genuine hearts. <clears throat> so well, we've considered uh, what it means to be born again and, and, and why we desperately need it and, how, and also how it happens to us. How it's a work of God. Now let's think about what the evidences are for being born again. A lot of people say that they're born again, but are they? What are the signs of genuine conversion, of regeneration? Jesus says, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. We, we don't see the Holy Spirit. We don't see tongues of fire on people. We don't, we don't see uh, you know, doves descending on people. 
to indicate that they have the Holy Spirit. So, so, so we don't see the Holy Spirit, but we see the effects of the Holy Spirit uh, in, in people's lives. You can't say that you're born again, but then have no fruit and no evidence of, of any kind of spiritual life within yourself. One fundamental effect that the Spirit has on people is that they believe. They have faith. They believe that the Lord they believe in the Lord Jesus and they trust him for their salvation from sin. They confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Their faith isn't just not, not, not just like completely a hidden private thing, but it's something that they confess with their mouths. They also have a new relationship with sin. Before being born again, people love to sin and, and, and hate being caught in their sin. But when someone's born of God, their relationship to sin changes. They begin to hate their sin, and they're also at peace with their sin being confessed and exposed, and, and, and because they've found forgiveness. they found peace with God. There's not, there's not the shame and the guilt anymore with their sin. There's not, there's not a danger of, of, of confessing sin, of exposing it. Instead, there's freedom. So the relationship to sin changes. They also have a, a humble recognition that, they, that they're sinners in, in, de, in desperate need of mercy, and they're, they're no better than anybody else. There's a humility there. Another sign of the new birth, of regeneration, is genuine obedience to God's word, a genuine obedience from the heart. There's no longer this this external veneer of obedience, or you know, where there's you know, kind of an outward speaking and outward doing, uh, but an internal grumbling and complaining and and uh, and distaste for the things, for the ways of God, the commandments of God. Uh, perhaps a grumbling that that God's commandments are just burdensome, but instead. That burden is, is lifted. There's a, a different uh, perspective on, on, uh, on the commands of God. Uh, and so then there's this, ever-growing, uh, there's this ever-growing desire to obey God and to keep his commands and to, and to follow him at any cost. That, that begins to grow. Now, when we're born of God, that, that doesn't mean we just instantly become perfect people, perfectly obedient people who don't struggle with sin anymore. Now, um, now, granted, you know, sometimes when 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 someone gets saved, I mean, there, there can be huge changes in their life. Uh, you know, addictions that they once struggled with are are, are no more. Uh, there's God definitely does that, um, but uh, but just in the same way as just sometimes, you know, when we were born as babies, we. We weren't born as fully mature adults, and we have had a lot of growth and maturing to do. In the same way, it's the same way when we're when we're born again spiritually. We've we're, we're born, and we have a lot of growing and maturing to do. There's still times we 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 struggle with sin, and we have, as Pastor Chris talked about, we have these besetting sins. So I'm not speaking at all of uh, of uh, of a perfectionism or anything like that that happens when we become born again and become new creations. Another evidence of someone who is uh, 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 spiritually alive is, is that they pray. They pray. 
they have a relationship with God as their father. And so, and so they speak to him. They pour out their hearts to him. They, they pray to him because they know that they'll be heard. And they know that they're loved. Another evidence is that we have a, we have a different relationship with God's people. There's a love for one another that begins to grow. 1 Peter 1, verses 22-23 says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So, love for one another grows out of a pure heart, that pure heart comes from having been born again. And we're born again because God has implanted his imperishable word like a seed into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And, and new life happens and this growth happens. And this, then these early signs of growth is, is this brotherly love that happens. Now obviously, you know, love for other believers, it's not always easy. It's, it's, there's rocky times with that, no doubt. Um, but, but when you're saved, there, there should be a new relationship, a, a love for your new brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, more can be said here about the evidences of the Spirit in your life. Uh, so if you're still wondering, if you have been born of God, I'm, myself or Pastor Chris or any of the elders, we'd love to sit down with you and help you discern the Spirit's work in your life. But if you're sitting here today and, and, you, and you, can't, you can't see any evidences of the Spirit, I mean, you know, the things I've mentioned here as, as evidences, they, they don't seem to be in your life. You, you, your life doesn't look any different from those who don't profess faith in Christ. If that's you, then you may still be dead in your sins. And there's no greater need that you have than to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins to Him. And be saved. And that's exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus in verses 9 through 15. This brings us to our third point. Real faith, real praise, and a real Jesus. Here Jesus is going to point Nicodemus to a real faith. What real belief looks like. Where, what, what real belief looks upon. He's going to point him to a real exaltation and praise of Christ. Something that's going to be far greater than flattery. And he's going to point him to who the real Jesus is. So read with me verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he isn't just a teacher sent by God in the sense uh, that Nicodemus and, and the other uh, Pharisees 
uh, worth thinking. Uh, as if he was just merely this gifted prophet. Jesus reveals to Nicodemus that he is the Son of Man who was the only one, the only one to have actually descended from heaven. Heaven was Jesus' home. He dwelt with God, and so he alone is able to testify to heavenly realities, things that he had seen and known. But Nicodemus and the Pharisees were not yet ready to believe his testimony because they did not yet know the real Jesus. Do you know the real Jesus? He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. He's the Son of David, the Messiah who brings about the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. He is the light of the world. He is the Word of God made flesh. He is the creator of everything. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the reigning king and he is the coming king. This is the real Jesus of the scriptures. Do you believe in him? Do you know him? Jesus then points Nicodemus to real faith and real praise in verses 14 and 15. He does this by directing Nicodemus to another Old Testament passage, which we had just read earlier, to Numbers chapter 21. There we saw that Israel had grumbled against God and Moses, and so God sent venomous snakes as punishment. Many people were bitten and died. But God mercifully provided a bronze snake on a pole and lifted it up for the people to see. And if anyone was bitten and looked upon that pole, they were healed. Jesus then draws a parallel between himself and this story. Just as people looked to the pole that was lifted up and they were saved, so also those who look to Jesus in faith, when, when he is lifted up on the cross, they too will be healed and saved. This is real faith. Real, the real object of faith. Faith looks to Jesus, not just as a miracle worker, but as a man on a cross, crucified for sins. That is real faith. We've all been snake-bitten. We've all been snake-bitten by the ancient serpent, Satan. We've, we've yielded to his temptations and we've sinned. And so we've received this, the curse of sin, which is death. But when we look to, to Jesus Christ in faith, when we look to Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for our sins, we will find eternal life in Him. In other parts of the book of John, and also we see it in the book of Isaiah, it's when it speaks of Jesus being lifted up, it speaks of Jesus on the cross. It speaks of it not as disgrace and shame, but as his exaltation, his glory, his praise. And so Jesus is pointing Nicodemus and us away from man's flattery and, 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 and praise. And he, he points us to the true 
praise, the true lifting up, the true exaltation and glorying in Jesus Christ. We praise the glory of Christ when we see him in victory on the cross, conquering sin, death, and Satan. This is the real praise that comes out of real faith for the real Savior. So did Nicodemus believe? Was he born again? Well, we don't know for certain, but I believe, I believe that, that John, uh, John's gospel gives us hope that he was born again. In John chapter 19, right after Jesus died, Nicodemus joined Joseph of Arimathea in taking Jesus' body, applying myrrh and aloes to it, wrapping it in linen cloths, and then burying it in Joseph's tomb. I think this shows us that Jesus had an impact on Nicodemus. And that Nicodemus wanted to honor him and give him a dignified burial. Not just not just the 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 just the tossing a body aside and kind of, you know, treating it as if he was just simply simply a thief or or something, but but a dignified burial. That Jesus was somebody more than what he was made out to be. So I, I hope that we see I hope that we see him in the kingdom of God. Well, what about you? Have you been born again? I encourage each one of us, look to Jesus Christ, lifted high up on the cross. Give him your sin. Give him all of your sin. Give him your life. And he in turn will give you his eternal life. There is life in him that is freely offered to each one of us here today. So let's pray and ask God to do this work. Oh God, we praise you that you didn't just leave us under the law to just have to to try to just obey out of our own strength But instead, you gave us this new covenant. You gave us Jesus Christ. You gave us your Holy Spirit to to live within us so that we could become spiritually alive and follow after you and not turn away from you. We thank you for Jesus Christ that that he, he keeps our side of the covenant as our representative head. We would fail at that. We would break the covenant. But Jesus Christ has kept our side of the covenant. We thank you so much for that, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, we ask that your spirit would blow here. It would blow in the lives of our families, in the lives of our friends, neighbors. It would blow in the city. Lord, we ask that your spirit would bring about new life. And so we ask, Lord, that your gospel would go forth, that, that you would help each one of us to have, have, have your gospel message on our lips to share with others that your spirit may, might blow at the same time and bring about this new birth, this new life that can come to anybody. So, Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.